listening to Televisionary, the podcast about the shows that shaped us. In this episode, we take you through the history, key moments, and lasting impact of Survivor with a few detours along the way. Richard Hatch running around an island in the nude. It became this like hyper-realistic giraffe. If you disagree with what we say, you're wrong. We are recording. All right. Welcome to the Televisionary Podcast. We are here with uh, my co-host, Cody Hoffman. And we are here with my co-host, Elena Hillard. And we are so excited because this is our first episode of Televisionary, the podcast where we discuss the shows that shaped us. Yes, 100%. That is what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Elena and I both believe wholeheartedly that television is a powerful medium, an important art form in today's world and that does have the ability to change people's minds and perceptions and ideas about things. So we're going to discuss a lot of that throughout each episode. The conversations that we have may become wide ranging. We might stray kind of far from talking about television and stray into other matters that, you know, affect our world. But the goal is always going to be to tie it back to the show and to stick to the show's influence as much as possible. So we do have a note for our listeners, though. We are not experts. We are just big fans of the medium of television. And we like to think that we know what we're talking about, but we are simply sharing our opinions. So we might say things that you disagree with. And if you disagree with what we say, you're wrong. <laughs> Don't take anything that we say too seriously, but just know that we are right 100% of the time. So without further ado, I really want to share the show that we're going to be covering today, which I'm sure you might be able to glean from whatever title we decide for this episode. Today, we're going to be covering uh, one of the original reality TV series. This is a show that I think both of us watched as children, and mm. I have recently been delving back into. This show is, uh, let's say, it's outwitted, outlasted, and outplayed many other reality shows that came afterward. You know what I thought of just a little while ago, though? I think on this episode, we are going to outwit, outlast, outpod, outcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Survivor is a hugely influential show in a lot of different ways. So we're going to get into some of those topics of discussion very shortly. I think with Survivor, the thing that makes it sort of special is that although it wasn't the first reality TV series, and you could arguably say that reality TV has been around for a really long time, it is definitely the one that has, it's the one that changed everything. I mean, Survivor's been on now for 40 seasons. And after its rise to popularity, that is when you saw reality TV as a whole just explode. Yeah, I mean, there are examples of quote unquote reality programming going back even as far as like the 40s. I mean, Candid Camera could technically be considered a reality television show because those people were in unscripted situations. They were unaware that they were even being filmed. And of course, that's very, you know, lighthearted and a totally different approach to reality programming than Survivor. But you also had series like the PBS documentary series in American Family in 1973 that is kind of considered the first real documentary style program. You know, later examples like MTV's The Real World that premiered in 1992. But Survivor definitely was the first to explode the genre and 
really make reality television a genre in itself. Yeah, I like that you bring up candid camera. And it reminded me of this quote I found when I was kind of going through research for the show that talks about how they say a lot of people agree that candid camera or like even the dating game were the roots of reality TV, but they actually make a connection to a show called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I don't even know if is that a show or is that a zoo? I'm not sure. But they go on to talk about how we as a public were encouraged to believe, this is a direct quote, believe that the life of wild animals consists of hunting and killing and mating and giving birth when in fact the real life of wild animals consists of snoozing and hiding. And I feel like reality TV is this attempt to convince us that everything is so dramatic all the time. But the reality is most of the footage ends up on the cutting room floor and we just we miss out on all of the mundane moments and are just given this encapsulated I don't even know how to say it this like encapsulated form of what reality is it's it's kind of amazing actually when you think about it it really is uh, and that might be something that we touch on in further detail a little bit later. later but I think that's an important point to make that the question of of how real is reality programming is probably going to come up in any discussion about a reality television show but I think particularly in the case of Survivor that has been called into question a couple of times but let's not get ahead of ourselves here so the American version of Survivor was actually not the first version to be developed I don't know if everyone is aware of that but a version of the Survivor format called Castaway was first developed by Charlie Parsons who then created the American version. But it was created for a UK production company in 1994, and no networks wanted to buy it. So Parsons took the show to Sweden instead and sold it to a broadcaster there under the name Expedition Robinson. And that version was the first to make it to air in 1997. I hate that name, Um, by the way. I agree. They say that it's inspired by Robinson. Swiss Family Crusoe Robinson. And oh, yeah, I don't like call it Castaway still. Like, does Sweden not have a word for Castaway? I, I don't, don't know. know. Maybe not. Maybe not. But anyway, that's <laughs> totally irrelevant because we are not talking about Expedition Robinson. The American version of Survivor premiered on May 31st, 2000, two days after my birthday. Woo! <laughs> Premiere was watched by 15.51 million people. The ratings grew almost every week throughout that first season, and the finale was watched by over 51 million people. The second most watched Which episode is... of television in the 21st century, behind only the series finale of Friends, which is which is kind like of unreal for a first season of a show. For a first season, and, and it ran over the summer too. Like most shows don't air in the summer because people don't watch as much TV in the summer and you get 51 million people. That's about probably more than a sixth of Americans at the time. Yeah. And the thing is, too, like I I was reading like the behind the scenes of season one, like when they were making the show, it was a summer show. It was kind of just a an almost like a replacement or like a filler TV show. It was a big risk. And I think the people making the show at the time weren't even sure that it was going to air for an entire season. I know that I read stuff about the contestants even treating it kind of like a joke. I think it was a, an article about Colleen from the first season. They put Jeff's name down at Tribal Council to like vote him out 
out. Like that's how it's surprising it is that it did reach the level of, of success it did so quickly, I think. Yeah, the show was a huge success in that first season and ratings continue to stay excellent for many, many seasons. It, of course, has had a drop off over the past you know, 20 years, <laughs> um, but it still yeah. remained one of CBS's most watched shows, which is impressive how many other shows are even on the air after 20 years, but still in, you know, the top two or three shows that air on Wednesday night. It's pretty amazing the way that the show has held up. And I think even the numbers it pulls today are still relatively impressive. I mean, people don't watch TV anymore, not the way that they did when the show premiered. So for it to be still, it's like usually what, like 7 million an episode, give or take? Like that's pretty good. Mm -hmm, it is. So we are um, going to work through some touch points throughout the show. Uh, these are just things that we think are important to the show's impact. These are things that kind of set the show apart. The, the average person, whether they have watched the show or not, is generally going to be familiar with because of the show. So some of these have real, you know, cultural importance and some of them are just kind of like funny things, <laughs> but <laughs> to, you know, the overall um, context of the show. So we want to get into them. The first one, I think there are probably the most things to talk about from season one, just because I agree, really you know, upended every expectation of what television was supposed to be. And one of the ways I think that it did that was by showing Richard Hatch running around an island in the nude. So that's the first place that we're going to start here. And with Richard Hatch, I've just got to say I've gone completely down the rabbit hole with Richard Hatch in my research for this episode. He has a YouTube channel, which I highly suggest anyone to check out. He does some like recaps and talks about gameplay and talks about how much he hates Jeff Probst. Uh, but he, I think it was in this where I heard him mention that the nakedness thing kind of bothers him in a sense because he says that everybody else was naked all the time too. They just didn't cut it into the show. <laughs> But somehow I find that kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, I, if anyone is going to be naked all the time, I would definitely say Richard Hatch first. Like, I can't imagine that, like, Gretchen was naked all the time, you know? <laughs> what if she was, though? I, she was. Maybe, maybe, maybe she, she was. It might even come from the fact that Rich was painted as so much of a villain in that first season. And there's something weirdly nefarious about someone being so brazenly naked. <laughs> Just so themselves that they don't care if, you know. I feel like it's such a part of the part of the game too. Like it's such a power move. If you're just like confident enough to walk around naked, it puts everyone else on edge and gives you all the power. Like mm -hmm. it's not quite a sex appeal, but I do think that there is some element of strategy in what he was doing. I think it was a good way to not only play the people on your tribe a little bit and get the power with them, but I also think it's much harder for the producers of the show and editors of the show to get shots of you and edit around you when you are completely naked. It's definitely something I'm sure they had to take into account. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And there's, I think it is important to note that someone like Richard Hatch can be naked all the time. But if they had shown a woman being naked all the time, there would be a more sexual aspect to it. Oh, I yeah, that's definitely true. Like the show definitely knew what it was doing, putting, 
you know, like painting people in certain lights and, you know, they can edit so much to make things look a certain way. You know, Rich can be naked all the time. Maybe everyone else was too. But the fact that they show that and not show any of the women being naked, it, yeah. it does speak to the fact that they are trying to make Rich look like a certain person. Even in the uh, the reunion episode, I think it's Rich and Sean and they just keep saying back and forth, and I'm quoting, I'm not saying this like from my own mind, but they keep calling it like fat gay fag or something like that on the reunion episode on live TV. Was I was it broadcast live at the time? I believe the reunion show was. I could be wrong. Yeah. So they just keep saying it and like it's so interesting that that was repeated so many times and also one just so so owned by Richard but then like you just have Sean he's just he just like keeps saying it and, like they're laughing together and it's like I mean I guess this kind of plays into a later point that we're probably going to talk about which is the political incorrectness of a lot of the show in general but especially the first season I don't know where I was going with that but I do think it's interesting that he he kind of just owns it and regardless of how the show portrayed him he he accepts his behavior and it's comes back to bite him in the ass when he comes back for a later season of the show it does. I mean, obviously, whatever happened on that island, he won. So it wasn't like everyone was so disgusted by him or vilified him in such a way that they weren't willing to hand him a million dollars. How much of that is you know, due to the edit that he got, that vilification? You know, no one will ever really know, but except the 16 people who were on the island, I guess. Right. But, you know, I think it is a testament to the kind of show that they make that you can have someone who is not a good guy within the narrative that they're painting still end up winning the show. And, you know, he made his mark, that's for sure. Whether you like him or not, whether you like the way he played the game, whether you like the fact that he is confident enough to walk around naked, part of the lore of the show, I think, is knowing that anyone can win despite, yeah. all, you know, producers try to paint it. And I mean, look, Jenna showed up to the final tribal council in an all white outfit with no bra on. <laughs> I mean, is that that's almost as bad as Richard being naked all the time. All right. So so Richard's naked most of the first season. Yeah. So Richard comes back for season eight. And so do a couple of other people from season one. Uh, including Sue Hawk, who finished fourth on that season, was part of Rich's original alliance. And Rich decided to still be naked sometimes on All Stars. No big surprise there. But during one of the challenges early in season eight, Rich decided to disrobe during a challenge, an immunity challenge. And during that challenge, he made physical contact with Sue Hawk. It was never really, you know, specified exactly what happened you know it's blurred of course on television for air but the incident was just kind of brushed over at the time you know within the episode everyone was just kind of like ew don't do that rich but you know there was no kind of chastisement there was no you know no one saying forcefully don't do that rich <laughs> right it, right just kind of like ew stop but obviously that incident did have an impact on Sue. Rich was voted out on not that episode, but I believe the next episode. And the following episode, Sue withdrew from the game because of the psychological impact that that moment had for her. So clearly it was a bigger deal than anyone tried to make it seem at the time. Now, the show 
did apparently settle things with Sue. She was quoted as saying in an interview after the show aired that CBS had helped her to deal with the situation. So whether that means a monetary settlement or, you know, psychological counseling or whatever the case may be, you know, she no longer really seemed to hold the show accountable in any way for what happened to her. And she and Rich appeared together in an interview on the early show and acted like nothing ever happened. (laughs) Yeah, I've always been kind of weirded out the way that it went down. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to victim blame anyone because I think it could be totally traumatic if If someone has any kind of unwanted physical contact with you, let alone a naked person having unwanted physical contact with you. But I do kind of question what we didn't see, not only in the moment, but also what we didn't see with Sue. And is she is she doing this to get money from Survivor? Did she and Richard come into All Stars having an agreement to be in in an alliance or something that we never heard about and he gets voted off and then she just leaves? I mean, there's so many things. And I mean, that just plays into the bigger concern with any reality show is that we just don't see everything. We don't know what's going on. And I mean, the other side of it is the show was what, season eight, season one to season eight? How much like Even in that short amount of time, the perception of someone being naked on TV had already kind of changed, I think. And then thinking forward to today, how an act like that would be perceived post Me Too movement. That's a good point. And that's something that we will talk about a little bit more, I think, with something that happened in a very recent season. You know, at the time, it was just so brushed off. And you know that 16 or however many years later, that would never have happened. You know, Rich probably would have been immediately either pulled aside and strictly warned, don't ever do that again, or even ejected from the game. I think that just shows how far, you know, society has come, you know, looking at the way that it was handled at the time and looking at the way this more recent incident was handled, which we can get into that more recent situation. I think we should just talk about it because I think it is really connected spiritually (laughs) to what we're talking about already. So in season 39, there is one contestant named Kelly Kim who expressed concerns about the way that another contestant, Dan Spilo, was repeatedly touching her without asking. It was Kelly specifically making these allegations, but there were a few other contestants as well. And Kelly was allegedly asked by a Survivor producer to let them know if Dan Spilo continued to cross the line with her and that the production would immediately take action. And production apparently contacted CBS about the situation. They instructed them to have group and individual meetings with the remaining castaways. And they formally warned Dan Spilo about his behavior. And all of this was shown on the episode in which it happened via title cards to explain the situation to viewers. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Kelly Kim says she did not know that Dan was getting a personal warning until she watched that episode. Wow. She was not allowed by CBS to see any of the episodes ahead of time. So I'll just read a direct quote. If production was going to give Dan an official warning, they should have just pulled him from the game or at least informed me so that I was aware of how it might impact the game. Because it's crazy to even think that this could possibly happen. But this situation was used as a game move. There were other contestants that saw this as an opportunity 
to get Dan out at a tribal council. But then Dan's allies were retaliatory toward Kelly trying to use this as an excuse to get rid of him. It was, you know, a big mess, <laughs> obviously. And Kelly ended up actually being blindsided while Dan stayed in the game. You know, following the conclusion of the season, other people on the cast did come forward to say, yes, this happened to me also. And they were willing to sweep it under the rug to keep themselves and an ally in the game. That is so nuts. And I I remember reading something about this in which he was he was eventually ejected from the game. And what I read was that it didn't even happen in response to what was happening to contestants. I read that he was not asked to leave until it happened to a member of the production team. That's correct. This uh, was the first time that a contestant ever had to be ejected from the show by production. And a lot of fans and, you know, other contestants like Kelly felt that it should have happened when there were first, you know, clear signs that it was going to be a problem. Yeah, for real. It's it's almost unforgivable that it had to happen that way. It is. And it shows maybe that CBS just did not learn their lesson when this happened the first time with Rich and Sue. So for CBS to not care about that, not to say that they don't didn't care, but they didn't care enough for sure. Well, they didn't care enough. And I understand why, because it's, it may not be as nefarious as this, but it is drama. It is something they can build an episode around. And season 39 had to have come out in what year, like right around the time when everything was hitting the fan with like the Me Too movement, like it's relevant to what was happening and could potentially boost ratings in some kind of sick way. Yeah. So one of the ways that the show has not been incredibly diverse, I guess, over the years is um, its depiction of the LGBTQ community. They have had, you know, a number of gay contestants, trans contestants now. One of those trans contestants was on season 34. Zeke was a trans man who was not publicly out, but that all changed during season 34, unfortunately, and not by his own choice. During a tribal council in season 34, Jeff Varner, who is gay himself, outed Zeke in an attempt to show that Zeke was capable of deception, not revealing the fact that he was trans to the rest of his castaways. As soon as Jeff revealed this to everyone else, he turned to Zeke and said, why have you not told any of these people you're transgender? Zeke was stunned, silent. Every obviously. Obviously. Everyone else stunned. And then they just began laying into Jeff. It was kind of incredible the way that everyone just right away turned to oh my god how could you do this especially jeff as a gay man yeah he knows that that's not his story to tell that's not his choice to make even if he wasn't you know sure if zeke was out as trans that's not something that you need to say especially in the context of the game as ammo against him yeah that he has made a life-altering mistake that he has done yeah. that no human should have ever done. And at least the other, you know, castaways were very staunchly in support of getting rid of Jeff that night after that. They were already planning to vote for him anyway. But 
Um, you know, there was no question they didn't actually even vote that night. Jeff Probst just went around to everyone and said, we all know who's leaving, right? <laughs> and Wow. So Jeff Farner got his torch and left the game. It, it's completely insane and reflective of how you get on this show or any reality show and the fact that you can get so absorbed in what's happening and maybe the Jeff that that reveals uh, Zeke really was so wrapped up in the game that he didn't realize that there were real world consequences to this. Yeah, I do find it a little bit interesting that the CBS diversity pledge is only committed to racial diversity, ethnic diversity. There is no mention of sexual diversity, of gender diversity. I mean, they've always had split, you know, between male and female contestants. But to my knowledge, I'm not aware of any non-binary contestants to have been on the show or any asexual contestants or intersex contestants for that matter. So I, I do wonder if they are committed to showing diversity in all lights. I mean, obviously the racial diversity is an important step, but, you know, trying to bring more representation for that community onto the show would only benefit it, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if there's just some sort of legal component where it's it's harder to vet people f based on their sexuality than race, or if it's the fact that it does air on CBS, which is like a very, I mean, it's cable TV, like very family centric. So there's there's probably multiple reasons why like focusing on sexual orientation or gender is it's just a little bit harder to rectify. I agree with that. I think one of the things that we had wanted to talk about is the fact that the show is often kind of purported to be such a microcosm of society. It is supposed to be this place where people are drawn from all backgrounds, all walks of life, and, you know, put on this island on a fair, what's supposed to be a fair competition for everyone. And, you know, someone can get there and be the only Black person on their tribe. Someone can get there and be the only lesbian on their tribe. And that can be an isolating experience for someone, you know, to not, that can be something that makes the game not feel fair. You know, if all of these straight white contestants have each other to cling to because they understand more about each other's experiences, then are you alienating people that don't have anyone else there to identify with? Well, let's get into one final touch point that I think is worthy of bringing up, which is a lawsuit that happened in season one regarding Stacy and her vote off of the show. So I think the gist of the matter is that as a contestant, Stacy Stillman, who was a lawyer in real life, uh, she was voted off of the show and she went on to file a lawsuit claiming that producers spoke to contestants basically conspiring to get her voted out. Fan favorite Rudy was kind of on on the outs with everyone. He was on his way to be voted out. But after people were talked to, specifically, I think it was Dirk and Sean, who were contestants in that first season, were talked to by producers to change their votes to vote off Stacey. Producers wanted to keep Rudy around because fans loved him. He was super politically incorrect. He was full of funny, witty little quips. Stacy was not as likable and was a fairly weak competitor. So after 
she was ejected. She filed this lawsuit. She did get other contestants to come on with her and testify as to what happened to them. I think that's the gist of it. I know there was some strange drama regarding the reunion show as well, where she really negotiated to get like a certain amount of, I don't know, like like a really nice hotel room and like bring a guest with her to the, to the reunion show. Um, I think it just brings up the point of how real is reality television? How much is it manipulated? And how much can we trust that what actually is shown on the show is what went down behind the scenes? You know, this was the first season and Stacey was the third person voted off. So this is nine days or less into the show. And already there are, you know, accusations that the producers are tampering with the outcome with trying to persuade contestants to do certain things a certain way. But it's important to keep in mind that these kinds of shows are legally obligated to not manipulate the show in any way that can affect the outcome of the game. Um, there is a federal game show law, they call it, that states that prohibited practices in contests of knowledge, skill, or chance. And it says that it shall be unlawful for any person with intent to deceive the listening or viewing public, one, to supply any contestant in a purportedly bona fide contest of intellectual knowledge or intellectual skill, any special or secret assistance whereby the outcome of such contest will be in whole or in part prearranged or predetermined. So if they did indeed go to contestants and try to persuade them to vote a certain way, they were trying to affect the outcome of the game, which would be breaking that law. So that's basically what the lawsuit is about. Or was that law in place at the time of season one, or has it been put into effect after? Because that would have been so early Uh, on. What I can tell looking at the law right now in front of it with my eyes, the most recent statute listed the date is december 8th 1980 so they're more designed for game shows like quiz competition shows because of problems with like the sixty-four thousand dollar question which may be a show that we talk about at some point but you know there was a whole controversy and then a movie called quiz show inspired by that controversy so go watch that movie if you're interested in finding out more about that or keep listening and maybe we'll talk about it one day but that i think is the reason that those laws were created and this kind of show the survivor format is just such a heightened example of ways that shows can you know manipulate the quote-unquote reality of a situation to try to produce a certain outcome. I think the other aspect of this for me is that while contestants could or could not be manipulated by producers during the actual playing of the game, the shooting of the show, something that could have even bigger ramifications, which ties into the what is reality, how real is reality TV, is that oftentimes what impacts contestants most is the way the show is edited and the way they're portrayed in that final edit. Just before we started recording, I read an article that was mostly about The Bachelor, The Bachelorette and Love Island, in which they talk about how these people, there were like 38 suicides since the onset of those shows by contestants. It's kind of an alarming number. And a lot of it had to do with the way that they were portrayed in the media. And just 
even simple things of some of it is producers telling them to do things, but a lot of it is just even the way the show's cut together, even the music that's played. I I think there was a a contestant in The Bachelor or The Bachelorette who was portrayed kind of as a creep because every time he did anything, they just played like sad music behind him. And he got off the show and everyone's like, dude, are you such a creep in real life? Mm. So while, yeah, it's great that there are these laws in place to protect contestants during the show, maybe there should be something in place to protect them afterward. And I know that there are therapists on shows and many reality shows now employ therapists to even guide contestants after they've been eliminated from the show. But Mm. there is... Often what happens is it's not what's happening during the show. It's it's the ramifications of of how they are portrayed and the things that happen after the show. And that's a much more difficult problem to address. Right. I think especially it's difficult because if you sign up for the show, you are basically signing away the rights to everything about your life, (laughs) you know, in order to appear on the show for that select period of time. And then afterward the show doesn't really have to take responsibility for what you did on it so it's responsible of them if they want to help you with any negative consequences of what you've done for example i don't know if they offered any kind of psychological assistance or anything following the transgender reveal incident that we talked about earlier to you know especially zeke but also to jeff realizing the weight of what he has done but you know situations like that no one comes into the show expecting something like that to happen and no one probably even in the moment realizes how big an impact it can have on their life afterward so the article i read about the bachelor which i know a different tv series but they even quote some of the contract for the show in this article and yeah you basically sign your life away you say this is a quote i acknowledge and agree that Producer may use or reveal personal information which may be embarrassing, unfavorable, shocking, humiliating, disparaging, and or derogatory, may subject me to public ridicule and or condemnation, and may portray me in a false light. Mm. And moving on from that, it gives producers, quote, the right to change, add to, take from, edit, translate, reformat, or reprocess basically all of the footage of the show. And so I'm sure Survivor's contract is not far from that. I would imagine that they're all fairly similar. So you you get what you're getting into when you sign the contract, but also there should be maybe a responsibility of the show to vet people coming on a little more closely. I know that therapists are used often to screen people, but I think a lot of the time what happens is they get screened by these therapists and the therapists say, yeah, this person could easily blow up. This person has anxiety and will not do well in a situation that is high pressure. And producers go, yeah, we're going to cast that person because we know they're going to do something crazy on camera. Yeah, a lot of shows, if not all reality shows, really do a psychological evaluation of contestants beforehand. But what we don't know is whether that psychological evaluation is used by the producers, by the people you know casting these shows to kind of select for a certain kind of personality type or a certain trait that might be to the contestant's detriment when they're actually on the show, but that would be, you know, that would make for good television. 
Yeah. And I mean, if we're moving into overall impact of the show, which I think we kind of are, Mm -hmm. Survivor, in a sense, is one of the first times that we see real people becoming stars, TV stars, and many of them were, at least for a brief period of time, some longer than others, stars for some time after the show. And the what is the psychological impact of going from being a, a nobody to a celebrity essentially overnight? Yeah, I think part of it, too, is that these people became celebrities for being themselves. They did not appear on television as a character in the way that basically everyone else before them had. The stars of this season of television were just basically being themselves, you know, not exactly as they would be in the real world. Maybe they're put into this, you know, strange situation. But, you know, up to that point, basically, if you were on TV, you were an actor or a host of some kind, or you were right. you know, contestant on The Price is Right or something where, you know, we can't really count that. (laughs) But these people suddenly had the world digging into their real lives. And, you know, all of the the consequences of what happened on the show is now going to impact their real life. They're not being, you know, they're not portraying a character In the traditional sense, you can argue that they are cast to be a particular character on the show, but they are represented as being a certain kind of person on the show. And that is going to follow them basically for the rest of their life afterward. That had never really happened before. Yeah. And I think it becomes kind of interesting then, too, in a show like Survivor, which recycles players a lot thinking specifically of season 40, which just happened, which was Winners at War, you had people come back from much earlier seasons who are now like 15 years older than they were when they originally played the game. And so it's very interesting to see how the perception of what we think they're going to be and the reality of who they now are 10, 15 years later I think it changes the way that they're perceived for sure. They are different people, but we want them to be a certain way. It's it's very weird. Survivor really recycles people in a way that I don't really know that other reality shows do, at least not to the level Survivor does. It seems like almost every season they have returning players come back. Yeah, because I'm sure that most of the people who get painted as a villain on the show are not setting out to be a villain, you know? So uh, I think watching that back as someone who, you know, has been portrayed in an unfavorable light, you've got to be asking yourself, you know, what are these traits about who I am that are seen as so undesirable or are seen as, you know, villainous? And it's got to be such a, a mind trip for those people that aren't viewed favorably to have to reckon with that, to reckon with the things within themselves that they probably don't even realize they are doing, you know, those traits that they are exhibiting that are somehow seen as being worthy of vilification. And, you know, how do you deal with everyone in the world knowing a certain thing about you that you didn't expect them to know, or feeling a certain way about you that you don't understand why they feel that way? Yeah. It really does kind of point out just how exploitative these shows are. And I'm not, I don't want to like keep saying things like that to make it seem like I hate 
Survivor for what it has done to people because I have enjoyed watching it over the years. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, what does that say about our society that we do enjoy watching people sometimes being taken advantage of, sometimes having their lives totally altered or ruined because of things that happen on these shows that they that they're signing up for. And, you know, maybe that is another example of how the show is a snapshot of America, in a sense, because what happens within the show and what happens to the contestants on the show, we watch at home and and we enjoy it. Like there's there's some sort of weird. We like to see people struggle in in some way. We like to see people obviously survivors enjoyable to watch because we like to see people win. But I think what mostly keeps people watching is you love to see these people scramble. And more than anything, maybe the show is a snapshot of America because it reflects our own inward desires of like seeing people at their worst. Like that's maybe that's what <laughs> something that Americans love. I think that's a good point. I think you know, seeing people at, at low points sometimes just makes us feel better about ourselves, unfortunately. Uh, and that's something that I think a lot of reality TV has produced is people either behaving badly. And we're not just talking about competition shows here, but just reality and television in general. But like seeing people doing things that you don't think you would do. You don't think you would stoop that low. So it kind of makes you feel better about yourself, you know, somehow higher than the people who would deign to out someone as transgender, for example, on television, or someone who would deign to eat a live grub on television <laughs> or drink a cow blood on television. You think, oh, I would never do that. I'm better than that person. I think that is a weird element to our enjoyment of it. Oh, it definitely is. Uh, earlier this year, I took a class online through Coursera that I would highly recommend to anyone listening, which is the science of well-being. And they talk a lot in that class about how downward comparisons, comparisons to people in our life who are doing worse than us, it actually significantly makes us feel better about ourselves. They were specifically talking about social media. So like, in a way, like if you in your social media are only looking at people who are swimsuit models, you will feel worse about yourself. So you could, in theory, tailor your feed to show you people who are only doing worse than you and it would boost your mood. And I think reality TV, in my mind, has always sort of been linked to social media in, in kind of a weird way. But I think watching reality TV is very much the same where you can watch these people doing these things and humiliating themselves. And in your mind, you can go, well, I would never do that. Like I'm doing better than that. Even with Survivor, you watch people not eating food, like they're only eating rice. Watching that in some way is boosting your own mood and it's messed up. And you could argue about the ethics all day, but there's something in our wiring that seeing that makes us feel better. Yeah, I think that reality TV, and particularly Survivor, kind of led to this increased prevalence of voyeurism in society. And that's something that has been especially amplified, as you said, through social media. But it has given us the ability to just kind of see how other people live and see how other people are. And it's not 
shameful for us to see someone walking around naked on television, censored, of course, but it's strangely titillating sometimes to see people just to just get to watch other people live. Why I don't know why we're so fascinated by that sometimes, but I do think that Survivor plays a big role in the rise of our fascination in that way. And, you know, then social media, I think, kind of caught the ball and ran with it as far as that <laughs> idea goes. But I don't know that we get to the point that we are in society with our with our voyeurism, I guess, without reality. Reality TV. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I kept coming back to when I was preparing for this episode, I just kept coming back to social media, like every, every aspect of what we talked about. I would, I kind of just connected back to that. And not only just the voyeurism aspect, but also the production aspect. Reality TV is, is super produced by a whole staff of people, but social media in its own weird way, we are our own producers. We are crafting for the world a limited view or a manufactured view of how we want to be seen. It, I think both are playing to a very similar part of, of human psychology. Right. And I think going off of that, reality TV is not actually reality. Everything is so highly edited and manufactured into a product that appears to be real. And it will never be true representation of everything that has occurred while it was being filmed. There's just not, it's not possible to sit down and watch all, you know, 800 hours of footage or whatever it might be that's captured over those 39 days because like you don't have 800 hours in a day, you know, or, you know, yeah. no one's going to sit down and watch all of that footage because they have their own lives to live. So the product of reality that is presented to us on the show is never going to capture everything that fully happened. So it gives us this twisted perception, I think, of what is reality and how can we justify in our minds seeing something that we know is not real and yet want to believe that it fully represents everything as it actually happened. It's difficult to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that you are sort of being lied to <laughs> in a way about, you know, the depiction of things as they happen on that show. And should we enjoy that manipulation and that deception, essentially? I guess the saving grace of all of this is that most people, you and I, and most people that watch Survivor, watching the show is enough voyeurism for us. I just keep thinking about this article I read years ago about the guy who owned a hotel and he had like an attic and like little uh, peepholes into all of the rooms below. I think that like if we're watching Survivor and we're able to suspend our disbelief enough to enjoy watching it and accept its reality, like we're still mentally healthy Unlike this man who would just like live upstairs and look into the rooms below and wrote a diary's worth of things about it where he was, it wasn't even purely to watch people having sex. It was like watching people just literally live their lives. Like he became obsessed with doing this. So I don't know. I think we're, we're doing okay if reality TV is satisfying us enough to not have to do that. I guess that's a good point. If, if this is the way that people choose to channel their desire to 
watch other people's lives, then that's pretty innocuous. You know, it's pretty safe and it's not harming anyone except, uh, unfortunately, sometimes the contestants on those shows. But at the end of the day, that is their choice. So I really wanted to ask you, how much is the success of reality TV a response to the time in which it it sort of came about? I was specifically thinking about this in in the sense that like we really see Survivor and reality TV kind of taking off at a time in American history where like everything else was getting really dark. <laughs> Even I I was specifically thinking about like the dark night was like this dark reimagining of superhero movies and TV. You know, there was the the Wire and the Sopranos, these disenfranchised TV series. And then you have reality TV. And even though it is, quote unquote, reality out of everything else that was being presented at the time, it was sort of the lighter alternative to these darker shows. And I also really wanted to bring up just like quick mention that I feel like things really changed around the time of 9-11. And this isn't me just like relating everything to 9-11. But even even the Toys R Us logo changed from like this super cartoony giraffe to 2001, like post 9-11. It became this like hyper realistic giraffe. <laughs> so like, I think this like weird shift to like this hyper realistic, like dark view happened right around then. And that's really when reality TV... Sh- like it took off. So I don't know. I guess what I'm asking you is like how much of reality TV is a response to the darkening of our of our actual reality? Does it provide some sort of alternative view of the world that is light and comforting? Like, I, I don't know. Discuss. Yeah, that's an interesting point and not something that I had really thought of myself, but you might be onto something there. I think more than anything, it probably just provides us an escape from the things that are not great in our world. I mean, obviously, Survivor came about before 9-11, you know, premiered in the year in May of 2000. So things were you know, not as dark as they could be. But the wave, the tidal wave of reality shows that came after it, you know, basically were taking place in a 9-11 world. I think The Amazing Race, if I remember correctly, debuted either the maybe the week before 9-11 happened. So, and then, you know, the show has to, you know, the show is all about flying all, all, all over the world. <laughs> locations and no one is able to get on a plane in the United States. You know, just weird things like that, that, you know, can kind of mess with a show's presentation. But I don't think it reduces anyone's enjoyment of the show to have that as an escape from the things that are going on. And like you said, we, you know, talked about how there might be the that element of enjoyment because bad things are happening to people on those shows or you know there's an idea that I would never be as bad as that person but on the flip side of that it could be that we wanted to see people thrive and do well we wanted to see people winning a million dollars if they deserved it you know but the reality shows like this might give us that opportunity to see some good rewarding things happening to good people, which was kind of missing for a while there in our society. Yeah. And I mean, with Survivor too, 
there is such a removal from society. So we're watching these people essentially live on a fantasy island with rain and rats and snakes and all of that. But we see these people, there's no money. They don't have to worry about all of the mundane things or difficult things about our everyday life. And so there's got to be some aspect of escapism there where we're watching and, you know, how great would it be if I was just on this island and all I had to do was manipulate a couple people and I could win a million dollars. So it's interesting to say the least that it it's really taken off since our society has gotten a lot more difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing specifically about Survivor that might be appealing is that people basically do create their own new society there. You know, they establish the rules for how camp is run, how they will deal with overcoming certain challenges, what is socially acceptable within the context of the tribe. Those are things that you can't do in everyday life. You, the rules of society are basically written and it takes way too much work for anyone to try to change them, unfortunately. So it, I think that that's part of the appeal of a show like Survivors, that you get to see people trying to, to establish the world that they might want to live in. And I, I think as the years have gone on, there's been less of an emphasis from, you know, the show's broadcasts of the tribes actually setting up that kind of new society. But I do remember from the first season, especially that that was something that they emphasized, you know, was that these were almost like pioneers being thrown yeah. into this new environment and, you know, being forced to create this new world for themselves. And yeah, it only lasted 39 days. And it was a very highly controlled environment. <laughs> but I think that 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 idea of sort of starting over is appealing to people, especially in dark times like this. Absolutely. I feel really lucky that the seasons I've most recently rewatched, all of them in some weird way had such an emphasis on setting up the camp. Like the season I'm currently watching, which is season 28, the uh, bronze brains and beauty season, which has been so enjoyable. But there is a nuclear engineer who has before she even came on the show she had like in her mind come up with her ideal living quarters and so they get there and she starts bossing people around telling them how to build it and then it just like collapses it's one of the best moments in like the show that I've seen yeah I don't know it's it's interesting but I've definitely like I've watched a couple other episodes here or there like first episodes of seasons and it isn't as much of a focus but it just so happens that the seasons I've been recently watching have such an emphasis on building the camp oh survivor yeah you could psychoanalyze it all day long and find comparisons to our everyday life because everyone comes into it with their experience in our world and it shapes the world of the show. Mm -hmm. Very well put, I think. Oh, thank you. In my humble opinion. <laughs> I feel uh, like it's a nice place to end this conversation. All right. Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you, listeners. If you have stuck with us through our first episode, we hope you have enjoyed this episode, this premiere episode, <laughs> televisionary podcast. And we hope to have you back here joining us in a future episode. Once again, my name is Cody Hoffman. 
I am Elena Hillard. And we appreciate your support. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you want to hear more, check out our mini-sodes released every Friday. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye.